I want you to get your Bible out and turn it on and turn to Acts, the 20th chapter, in the 22nd through the 24th verse. As I speak to you for a short time on the topic, none of these things move me. Would you say that with me? None of these things move me. Come on, say it again. None of these things move me. In Acts, the 20th chapter, the Apostle Paul makes an amazing statement about his faith and his complete trust in the power of the Spirit of God to keep him safe no matter what comes his way. No matter what is around the corner, Paul makes an amazing declaration of faith. Acts 20, 22 through 24. Paul is, Paul is writing and he says, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Say that with me. But none of these things, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If you believe that, somebody shout amen. amen. Bethlehem, when God puts a promise in your heart in the altars of grace, when you get into the presence of God, he will put a promise into your heart. And when God puts that promise in your heart, you have got to come to the place where you believe the promise so strongly that no one can talk you out of it, that nothing can change your mind. It may seem impossible. The medical report may begin to tell you that it's not going to happen and you'll never get well. It may look like you'll never get out of debt. All the circumstances may indicate you'll never accomplish your dreams. You'll never meet the right person, or you'll never see your family restored. But deep down inside, you have got to have this confidence. You've got to have an assurance. You've got to have a knowing that God is still on the throne, that in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the battle, like David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. There has got to be a deep assurance that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is still the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's still the everlasting Father. He's still the Prince of Peace. He's still the hope of glory. He's bigger than any obstacle. He already has a way where there seems to be no way. You have to have a deep abiding peace from God to know that he's working behind the scenes. If you believe that, somebody shout amen. Because that's a fundamental truth of who we are. That what he promised will come to pass in the appointed time. And when you have this deep assurance... You don't get discouraged if the appointed time takes a long time. You don't complain if there's a setback because you have that unshakable confidence and faith. Now, immediately, if you are anything like me, you begin to say, okay, pastor, how do I get that unshakable confidence? How do I get that unshakable faith? Well, I believe the Bible teaches it is birthed in your heart through fasting and prayer. By spending time in the presence of Jesus. 
Like the Apostle Paul, you've made up your mind, and you too can say, none of these things move me. In my study, I began to ask, at what point did Paul come to the decision that nothing, no matter what came around the corner, nothing was going to change him? In Acts 9, it tells us that Saul of Tarsus had an encounter with God on the Damascus Road. And he's knocked off the horse, and he's struck blind. And they carry him to the house of Annas, or Ananias, on Straight Street. Excuse me, they carried him to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And he's there for three days, he's praying. The Bible doesn't tell us what he is praying, and the Bible doesn't tell us he's eating. It just says he's praying. The inference is he's fasting, and he's praying. I believe he's being confronted by the presence of God, and he's repenting for all of the things that he had done to the body of Christ. Remember, it was Saul of Tarsus that was there at the stoning of Stephen. And we were talking about it in the pastor's cottage that they would disrobe halfway when they got ready to stone someone. It was an arduous process. They were picking up stones. It would take many hours to kill someone that way. And they were coming after Stephen. And the men would work up a sweat. So they would disrobe and they would lay their clothes over at the feet of the one who was in charge. It was Saul of Tarsus who was there watching those things. So I believe as he's sitting there now in the house of Judas on Straight Street, he's repenting for all the things that he did and how he persecuted the church. And while he's praying, God, the ultimate multitasker, he speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. And he says, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and I want you to lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. Don't you know that this young man, Ananias, probably said, <laughs> are you sure? I mean, that's John Gotti. He's a bad dude. God, are you sure? And don't you know if this young man hadn't been obedient, and he would have said, no, God, I'm too afraid, I'm not going to do that. He would have missed out on seeing the launching of one of the greatest ministries in the history of the world. And so many times, God will speak to your heart with a promise, and fear will grip you, and you don't react, or you're not responsive, or you're not obedient. Could it be that you miss out on some of the greatest miracles because you allow the fear of the devil to steal your obedience? And so he goes and lays hands on Saul of Tarsus, and he becomes the Apostle Paul. What were these things that did not move him? Circumstances that looked impossible. Family and friends who say things will never happen. Negative and discouraging thoughts that plagued his mind. Instead, like Paul, through fasting and prayer, you will develop an attitude that says, circumstances do not change my mind. I'm not moved by what I see. I'm only moved by what I know. I want you to say something with me. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. That's a powerful statement. And what I do know, if God before me, who dares be against me? I know that as a child of God, he has the final say in everything and in everyone that comes into my life. I know that my God is still in charge. I want every parent to pay attention very closely. You must develop an unshakable attitude that says, I'm not moved by how my children are acting. 
I'm not going to be shaken that my adult kids are knuckleheads and they're making poor choices. I will not get stressed out because they're off course. I know in just a matter of time, if I keep praying and believing, fasting and praying and standing on God's word, that we shall see the results that God promised our family. So because of that, none of these things move me. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. None of these things move me. If you're a single person here, you must develop the attitude that says, I'm not moved by the fact I'm still single. And I haven't met the right one. I know God has already picked out the perfect person for me. He's got the perfect dime for me. He's got the 10 waiting right around the corner. God's already ordained someone to come across my path. I'm fully persuaded this person is in my future. So I'm not going to cancel out on God's plan in my life for a night of pleasure at some club, giving into the pull of the world's culture. No, I'm not going to forfeit my inheritance in God. I'm not going to forfeit my future for just one night of pleasure. None of these things move me. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know, say it now, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. Say it again, I will not allow what I see. Friends, that's unshakable faith. You're not moved by the circumstances. You know that God is on his throne working on your behalf. So you get up every morning and you get on the train with passion, with expectancy, looking for the great things that God has in store in that day. If you believe what I'm preaching, somebody just shout amen. amen. Abraham understood the concept of unshakable faith, even though he allowed his wife to sidetrack him. And if you were here last night, you heard how that happened. He allows his wife to sidetrack him, and God gave him a promise that he and his wife Sarah would have a child. In the natural, childbirth was impossible for them because Abraham and Sarah were both nearly 100 years old. Can you imagine? Listen, I'm 54. I can't imagine now starting over. Anybody my age want to have a baby? No. Couldn't imagine that. That's crazy. Let alone being 100. No. In fact, when you read the narrative, Sarah is wondering out loud, and she says to herself, is this possible now that my husband is all wore out? Some of you ladies know exactly what that means. He's all wore out. And then she says, how am I going to explain this to the girls? They're not going to believe it. But the Bible says in Romans 4.20, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. That brings up the next question. How could Abraham have this unswavering faith when all the natural odds seem to be against him? How do you have unswavering faith when it looks like there's so many impossibilities that are staring you in the face? In the human side of me, I, can, I could see how he would have had a, a glimmer of hope. But the scripture says he was fully persuaded. So how do you become fully persuaded when the circumstances seem impossible? 
What's his secret? Romans 4.19 says, He considered not the weakness of his own body, not the deadness of Sarah's womb. He considered not the weakness of his own body, nor the deadness in Sarah's womb. You see, the key to having unshakable faith in the year 2020 is to, consider your, is to not consider your circumstances, but instead to consider your unshakable God. Your circumstances like Sarah's womb may look barren. It may look impossible. In fact, many people would say, well, I don't know how that church is growing. I don't know how they're buying up all that stuff. There's, it's impossible. They can't build a new building there. That's impossible. We're here to tell them, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. Your circumstances, like Sarah's womb, may look barren. However, if you consider only the negative, you'll be discouraged, and doubt will creep in, keeping you from God's best. Instead, why don't you learn from Abraham and say, I will not focus on my weakness, nor the deadness of the situation in my family, or the deadness in my situation on my job. The negative things in my mind or what the experts are telling me. Instead, I will focus on how big, not my problems are, but I'm going to focus on how big my God is. My God is a great God. My God spoke the world into existence. My God walked into the cool of the garden and he formed man out of a pre-existing substance. But God never forms anything that he's not going to fill. He formed the earth and he filled it with vegetation. He formed the sky and he filled it with birds. He formed the ocean and he filled it with fish. He formed man out of a pre-existing substance and he filled it with his presence. Do you know at the creation, God said, let, God said, let there be light and there was light. God formed the earth. Everything that God, formed, everything that God made in creation He's spoken into existence, except man. Man is the only thing he touched. And it's caused in us a desire to always have the touch of God. Line up, raise hand. How many say, that's what I want. I just want the touch of God in my life. When you focus on God instead of your circumstances, amazing things can happen. You will often hear me say, emotions are good servants, but poor masters. A perfect example of that is in 2 Kings 4, the miracle story of the Shunammite woman. Here's a perfect example of not allowing your emotions to rule in your life, even in impossible situations. Now, this is an amazing story. I would highly recommend that you read it tonight before you go to bed. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 36. But let me give you a quick overview of it without draining it of all of its diamonds. She and her husband were wealthy. And she came to him and she said, Now I want you to build a room on the roof for the prophet Elisha and his servant Gehazi. There is no Hampton Inn around the area. That's just my emphasis. Don't, that won't be in there. That's the Puerto Rican version. And I want you to put a little table in there, and I want you to put a lamp and a bed and, because I want to do something good for the prophet. Her husband, he does just that. He builds the prophet's quarters on the roof. And the prophet is very th thankful, and he sends his servant, Gehazi, to ask her what he can do for her. I'm not much into typologies, but prior to Jesus coming, the prophet was a typology of God the Father, and the 
Servant was a typology of the Holy Spirit. And so Gehazi goes to her and says, my master has sent me to ask you, what is it he can do for you because he's so thankful? I love the King James Version. She answers, don't entreat me. That word entreat simply means in our vernacular, don't tease me. Don't tease me. Has the Holy Spirit ever given you a promise? Or has someone come up to you and said, God wanted me to share with you. And they share this amazing promise. And you walk away, you smile, well, thank you. As they walk away, you go, yeah, all right, all right. And then you say, Lord, don't tease me. Come on, am I the only one? Lord, don't tease me. And the reason she says don't entreat me is because she was barren and she wanted a child. And the prophet says to her, by this time next year, you will have a child. To her amazement, she gives birth to a son. Years later, he's out in the field working with his dad, which tells us he's now been past the weaning stage. He's about 10, 11, 12 years old. He's out in the field with his dad, and he grabs his head, and he says, Dad, my head, my head, and he falls dead in the field. Dad grabs him and starts to head home. What do you do when God gives you the fulfillment of a promise and then it's snatched from you? What do you do when it looked like the promise finally came, things are finally coming together, and then it's taken from you? He gets home and he goes to his wife and she sees him carrying the promise of God, the miracle of God, and he walks into the house and he says, what would you like me to do with him? And she says, take him to the upper room and lay him on the bed where the prophet has been laying. I could preach a whole series of messages. Are you taking the promises of God and laying them in the upper room with the Spirit of God? Are you bringing your promises, things that need to be fulfilled, things that haven't been fulfilled, and even things that were fulfilled and now have been taken? See, some of you were praying for children. You got children. You brought them to church. You raised them in the house of God. Then they got to the point of 18, 19, and 20 years old, and you were expecting them to launch out and do mighty things for God, and now they want nothing to do with God. They went to that secular university, got caught up in digital Babylon. What do you do? She leans over and she tells her husband, I need the keys to the camel. You're slow, but you're worth waiting for. And he looks at her and he says, why, where are you going? She says, I'm going in search of the prophet. And he answers and he says, why are you going? It is not the, noon, the moon harvest or a special day. Understand something. When God gives you a promise, you've got to hold on to it so hard that you know in the fulfillment of time, he will fulfill it. But there will be people close to you that won't understand. If they have not received the promise themselves, there will be people that just won't understand. They might even be as close to you as your spouse. She carried that child in her womb. She felt that child kicking. She knew there was a fulfillment of a miracle in her womb. 
And there are some of you here that you're holding on to it and your family doesn't quite understand you. They look at you and they say, why are you still going to that church? You've been waiting five years, 10 years, 20 years, and you still haven't seen anything. None of these things move me. She looks at him and she says, I've got to go to the prophet. And the Bible says a cloud of dust comes up over the horizon and the prophet sees her a long way off. I love that. God is watching. And he sees her a long ways off. And he says to his servant, that is the woman who was barren and God gave her a son. Go meet her at the gate and see if anything See if everything is well with her. Interesting that he tells him to go meet her at the gate. Gates are ways of entrance, or it's how you get access. The inference is God's going to meet you at your way of access. Wherever your faith level is, that's where the Spirit of God, the servant of the Lord, will meet you. See, some of you have a measure of faith. On your day of salvation, you were given a measure of faith. The tragedy is there are people who get saved on a daily basis and they get that measure of faith when they first get saved and they're satisfied with just a little faith. What you do with your measure is up to you. And he met her at the gate and he asked her a series of questions. How is it with your husband? Now, the Shunammite woman knows her husband is laying at home in the upper room with the dead promise. She could have panicked. She could have started wailing. But she straightens herself, and she looks that servant in the eye, and she says, it is well. None of these things move me. And I can almost picture in my mind that she's trying to get around the prophet, and, the, the, and he kind of goes this, blocks her. How is it with you? She fully well knows that the child is dead. How is it with you? It is none of these things move me. She's speaking words of life. She was focusing on God and not her circumstances. You see, you have a choice on how you respond to the circumstances of life. You can either get negative or you can stay positive in the things of God. And then he asks her the question, he gets right down to the nitty gritty. Here's the big question. How is it with your son? This is where most Christians fall to pieces. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the reality of what you see in the natural could crush all hope. How is it with your son? You know, the promised one, that you carried the miracle in your womb. You felt that miracle kicking and moving, and then you birthed that miracle. You had it in your hands. You, you nurtured that miracle, and then it was snatched from you. How is it with your son? And she says, it is well. None of these things move me. Faith is the evidence of things 
not seen. Fully knowing her child was home laying dead on the prophet's bed. In my mind, she's thinking, God gave me a child by the word of the Lord years ago, and he used this prophet to speak a word to my dead, barren womb. It's nothing for God to do the same thing and speak to the barrenness of death and bring life out of death again. In my situation, if my God could speak to my dead womb once, then my God could speak to my dead child again. None of these things move me. That's what you must have tonight. You must begin to say, no matter what I see my child doing, no matter how rebellious they are, none of these things move me. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his blessedness. It's on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I know my God is faithful. See, too often we consider only what we see and where we are right now. It all depends on how you will react to the adversity that comes into your life. I've got to ask a question right now. Are you considering your circumstances or are you considering your great God, the great I am? He is saying, I'm everything you need. In Scripture, God asked Abraham, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Listen, in our finite mind, we struggle with the concept of a miracle-working God. Oh, I know when you come to church, you'll shout with everybody, Ooh, you'll get caught up in the emotion, but the moment you get in the car, you start second-guessing, can God really heal? Can, can, can God really do it for me? Oh, I know he does it for Pastor Henry because Pastor Henry's anointed and Pastor Henry's gifted. See, some of you think Pastor Henry levitates at night. He's so... <laughs> Just ask his wife. She'll tell you the truth, though. My wife is watching right now on live stream. Hey, babe, see you tomorrow. And I'll never forget one time I was preaching in a large church and she had all three kids. We had three at the time. We have four now, but... We had three, three boys, and they were all in the nursery. And when the nursery workers saw her staying there, they, uh, they, all, they all left. And they said, well, you take care of the kids. We want to go to the service. So we had about an hour and a half long altar service. And people were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Lives were being changed. I was singing. God was moving. It was awesome. And then all of a sudden, the center doors of the church opened. And there she was, my wife. Her hair was all hanging sideways. She had one kid on the hip. She had another kid here. She had one hanging like an orangutan over the top of her. And she's all deceivable, and she goes like this. <laughs> I said, me? You want me? It scared me. Her makeup was all running. She was all sweating. And I, so I, I went around the back, you know, and to the lobby, and I stood there, and she said, listen to me. Cut this thing now and let's go to the hotel. If one more person tells me how anointed you are, I'm going to tell them the truth. <laughs> there was no anointing in the nursery, Pastor Henry. Presence of God left with a pail of dirty diapers. It's just amazing. And so many of us, we have a tendency to think that you know, we struggle with the concept of a miracle-working, all-knowing God, and we think that he only works for certain people. But the truth is, God is no respecter of persons. 
God asked Abraham, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The problem with some people is they know too much. Yeah. They try to figure out everything out for themselves, you know. Some of you have researched all the reasons why you won't get well. Yeah, you got to... Or you've researched all the reasons why you can't get out of debt and why you won't be successful. Some of you, the moment you go to the doctor, you know, the doctor tells you, I'll be right back. You grab your cell phone out and you get out WebMD. And you start researching all the things before the doctor even tells you you have anything. And you research why your spouse won't change. Well, he'll never change. I read on... Wikipedia. <laughs> I read on Wikipedia that my mother-in-law, well, see, that's your problem. Sometimes our intellects get in the way of what God really wants to do. See, in your walk with God, there will come a time that you will have to tell your mind to be silent. Why, Pastor? Faith is not birthed in your mind. Your mind is the center of unbelief. Faith is birthed in your heart. For out of your heart flows the issues of life. And there's a constant battle between what your mind says and what your heart knows. Oh, hear it again. There'd be a constant battle between what your mind says and what your heart knows. My heart knows that God is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Satan creates a train of thought that says, you're lonely, you need to go find somebody. My heart knows that I cannot outgive God. Your mind says, you can't tithe, you can't give over and above offerings, you can't do it. My heart says, my God has set me free. Your mind says, you're just like your dad. And there's a constant battle between what your mind tells you and what your heart knows. I heard about a woman who went to her pastor and told him that she had a very rare form of cancer. And she had a very short life expectancy. And she's telling him all this in the altar of their church after an amazing church service where they saw many miracles and many healings. And even though her pastor had just interviewed a woman in the morning service who God had healed three different times of cancer. And she was giving a testimony that Sunday morning after church, this lady came up. And she said she had no hope. She told her pastor all the reasons why, detail after detail, why she won't get well. And they stood there in the altar together. She gave story after story about all the people she researched on WebMD that didn't make it. She told him she had researched on WebMD all the medications that had worked for other forms of cancer, but they had no effect on her form of cancer. By the time she finished, her pastor, who was who with great faith before they started, <laughs> he was even doubting God could even do anything. The pastor said he got so depressed, he couldn't, couldn't wait for her to get out of the church. Just, okay, good luck, God bless you. Do you know what the problem was? She knew too much. 
She had researched and analyzed and reanalyzed, studied and thought about it. No wonder she didn't have any faith. She allowed the thought process of a dead world. She allowed a thought process of a world that says God can't heal, God can't deliver. She allowed that to talk her into missing and losing out on her faith. Listen, church, I want to be informed, and I want good information and you can't live with your head in the sand, but at some point you have to say, I will not fill my mind with any more doubt and disbelief. Yes, I want to know the facts, and, and I want to be, uh, know what I'm up against, but I don't need to know all the details of why I won't get well, or why I won't get out of debt, or why I'll never accomplish my dreams. In the text that we read earlier, the Holy Spirit never told the Apostle Paul all the details. He just said, buckle your seatbelt. You see, God will tell you, he'll give you the promise in the beginning. Isn't it wonderful when he tells you in the beginning? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you, son. Oh, thanks, man. That's awesome. And he tells you, see, it's easy to have faith at the beginning, and it's easy to have faith in the end when you see how God worked it out. How many know it's hard to have faith in the middle? When you... Don't really, and, the real, and the reason he never tells us what it's going to take to fulfill the promise is because the majority of us would say, no thanks. I'm not walking that. It's okay. If all you're doing is listening to the so-called experts, they will talk to you right into the ground. With all their facts and statistics and details, they can make you feel defeated. You know, doctors will scare you. How many know that's true? They'll, they'll tell you, well, it could be the worst. I mean, they'll come up with the bluebonic plague. You, you might have the bluebonic plague. I do, and we're going to do a test. You are, but we can't see you for five months. <laughs> they'll scare you. Reader's Digest tells a story of a man who was standing on the Brooklyn Bridge. He was so depressed and discouraged, he was about to jump uh, off the Brooklyn Bridge and fall into the Hudson River 277 feet below. Another man ran up to him. Uh, please, please, he said, don't jump. Just tell me what your problem is. And for the next three hours, in great detail, he tells this stranger all of his problems and all of his difficulties and all of his worries. And when he finished telling him three hours later, they both jumped. And do you know that attitude and spirit is contagious? And it'll attach itself to your family and your children. And suddenly you look like a cover model for the Book of Lamentations. <laughs> and the whole family is depressed. Have you ever met someone like, no, don't raise your hand, you might be sitting next to them. That's why I want to know the facts, but I don't want to know too much. Listen, if you don't cut off negative information, it will depress you. Instead, step out of the natural and say, this may be impossible with men, but with God, all things are. Oh, come on. With God, all things. Say it again. With God, all, all things are possible. In John 21, the disciples went fishing, 
After catching nothing all night long, Jesus appears on the beach. They don't recognize him at first, and he calls out. He says, friends, have you caught anything? And they said, no, caught nothing. Fishing all night, we didn't catch anything. Now, remember, they're very experienced. They're very knowledgeable about fishing. They're probably thinking to each other, who is that guy out there? I mean, this isn't our first rodeo. And then they recognize it's the master, and he tells them, Cast your net on the other side. Maybe a doubt hit them for a second. We've been doing this all night long. Cast our net on the other side. Finally, there's something stirs in their spirit, and they become obedient. It doesn't make sense, Lord. We've been out here all night long, but we'll be obedient. They cast it on the other side. The Bible says the nets were so full, they were jumping actually into the boat. Jesus basically tells them, in effect, what I promised you may not make sense in the natural. See, some of you are going to come to this altar in about 10, 15 minutes, and God's going to give you promises, and in the natural, it will make no sense. How many have had God give you a promise, and it made no sense? Come on, be honest. Look around. Lift, lift, lift your hands. Yeah, look around. Makes no sense. The fishing report may say there's no fish out there, but you have to understand, God says, I control the fish. I create the fish. They may not have been out there last night. They may not have been out there this morning or yesterday or, at la or last week. But when I can guarantee you, when I speak as the God of heaven, they will be there now. They had to turn off the doubt-filled mind. They had to ignore what their reasoning and logic and experience told them. They had to operate out of obedience and not what they saw. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. In my 30 years of marriage, 31 years of ministry, and most of my 53 years, 54 years serving the Lord, I've learned God is not always logical. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And nowhere in the Bible does it say when you pray, make sure it makes sense. He just says, just believe in me. Don't let your perspective keep you out of God's promises. Don't let your perspective... It may not seem logical. All your research and reasoning may say it will never happen. You may feel you're too old or you're too young or you're too inexperienced. But dare to do what the obedient disciples did and listen to the whispers of God in your life. Can you imagine a teenage little girl and an angel shows up to her? I've often wondered what it would be like to be a fly on the wall to hear a conversation between Mary and God. Wouldn't that be awesome? G good morning, God. Good morning, Mary. Hey, God, you, you sent Gabe over to me, oh, Gabriel, and, and he told me, Lord, that he gave me an incredible promise. Yes. He said I was highly favored, child of God, and that I'll give birth to a baby and, uh, and he'll be the Messiah. Yes, Mary, yes, you are highly favored. But Lord, you can't have a child without a man. That's impossible. That defies the laws of nature. 
If Mary had just looked at what was possible in the natural, she would have given up. But Mary, as young as she was, understood the principle to not consider the circumstances, but consider her God. I love the way she replied to the angel Gabriel. Mary said, okay, uh, she didn't say that sounds really far out. It's not logical, and I really don't know how it's going to happen. Instead, she said, be it unto me according to your word. But I can imagine her saying, hey, God, you told me I was highly favored, but you left some things out of the story. Remember, I told you it's easy to have faith at the beginning, and it's easy to have faith in the end. It's hard to have faith in the middle. God, you told me I was highly favored, and you told me I'd give birth to a child who would be the Messiah, and God, that you would overshadow me, and that's true, that's all wonderful, but you didn't tell me I was going to have a baby in a stable. And you didn't tell me that my parents couldn't be there for the birth of their first grandson. And you didn't tell me, Lord, that we'd be on the run for the next two and a half years because the king was trying to kill us and we couldn't go home, so we're running in the desert. And Lord, you didn't tell me you left the part out that I would watch my firstborn drag a cross through the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem, his face so beaten and battered that I hardly recognized him. You didn't tell me that I would watch him stumble under the weight of the cross. You didn't tell me that I would watch them spit on him and beat him with a cat of nine tails, and when they dropped him on the cross, his body would jerk. Lord, you didn't tell me that I would have to watch the Roman soldiers begin to gamble for his clothes and that he would jerk his head erect and then look at me and say, Mother, woman, behold our son. No, Lord, you left those things out. But none... Of these things move me, be it unto me according to your word. If God says the impossible can happen, then I believe impossible will happen. We may not understand how something can happen, but we do not have to reason it out. We don't have to come up with excuses. We do as Abraham did and become fully persuaded. Mary said something interesting when the angel Gabriel told her she'd have a child. And I've already mentioned it. How can this happen without a man? God was basically telling her, Mary, my promises are not dependent on man. Oh, don't miss that. My promises are not dependent on any man. You don't have to have a certain person in your life to fulfill your destiny. You don't need your boss to give you a promotion. If God wants to give you the promotion, he's not going to ask your boss for permission. He's just going to do what he wants to do because he's almighty God. If you're walking with him and the favor of God is on your life, you don't need someone with power to help you catch a break. None of these things move me. You have a father that owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Because God's promises are not dependent on who you know or who you don't know. The main thing is for you to know God and God is in control. Listen, if God can do it for Mary without a man, then he can do it for you without a bank. Oh, you didn't catch that. I said, if God can do it for Mary without a man, he could step in for your family and do it without a bank. If you believe that, clap your hands that he is sovereign God. 
If God can do it without a bank, he can do it without medicine. I'm not saying stop going to the doctor. That's not what I'm saying at all. I believe God uses doctors and medicine as well as heal supernaturally. Listen, however God chooses to heal is fine with me. If he chooses to heal me supernaturally or he chooses to heal me through the doctor, well, pray, all my praise is unto him. And through prayer and faith, you develop an attitude that says none of these things move me. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. Listen, I wish I came up with that saying. But that saying came from a little Puerto Rican mother who moved her family from Puerto Rico to Hell's Kitchen, New York in 1964. I want the musicians to come quickly. She was trying to find a better life for them, and, but in 1964, 65, Hell's Kitchen was run by the gangs. Her son Carlos, by the time he was 14 years old, was hooked on heavy drugs, heroin. He was already arrested for violence, stabbings, and attempted murder. She didn't speak English very well, but she would go to a little storefront church every day, two times on Sunday, and she would pray. And it wasn't enough for her to pray that he would get off of drugs and get out of the gangs. She was praying a God-sized prayer, and she was praying that God would make him a pastor and put the healing touch of God in his hands. Her son Victor would come into the house at 3 o'clock in the morning as high as a kite. And she would jump up and she would be praying and she'd grab him by the shirt and she'd say, Mijo, God is going to set you free from drugs and alcohol. And not only that, he's going to get you out of the gang and he's going to heal all the legal problems we have. And he's going to put you into the ministry and make you a pastor. And he'd say, oh, mom, you're crazy. She got a call from the local junior high school. And the high school, when she got there in the principal's office, all the teachers were in the principal's office. And the principal looked at her and said, ma'am, your son is no longer allowed in this school. We are so afraid of him, we believe he's on his way to the electric chair. He's not going to graduate. He's going to San Quentin. In the natural, you would think that she would cry and weep and be broken, but none of these things move me. She got up and she shook hands with the principal and all the teachers, and she thanked them. Thank you for trying to help my victim. Thank you for trying to help my Victor. She says she got up and walked down that hallway through the sea of teenagers. And she saw all the lockers and all the kids and all the things. And she began to say out loud with every step, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. What she didn't know was her prayers were being put into motion and God was speaking to a man in Pennsylvania to leave Pennsylvania and come to New York. His name, David Wilkerson. Does anybody else feel the presence of God in this room? And David Wilkerson was standing on the streets of Hell's Kitchen and he's preaching and on that day, a young man came around the corner and bumped into David Wilkerson. His name, Victor Torres. That day, he heard the message. David Wilkerson told him, 
Victor, if you were the only man alive, Jesus Christ would have died on the cross, rose again on the third day, and come just for you. Victor fell into the street, gave his life to Christ, immediately delivered of alcohol and drugs. God set him free, and the Holy Spirit moved into his life, and they got him off of all of the judicial things that they had to deal with. Started helping David Wilkerson. Today, Victor Torres pastors one of the greatest churches on the East Coast of America. He and his wife, Carmen, they go all over the nation and around the world laying hands on drug addicts and alcoholics and seeing them delivered and set free. My, my mind goes back to his mother who was fighting on her knees in a little apartment what would have happened to Victor or possibly even Teen Challenge if, if she would have given up? But she stood there and she dug her heels into the promises and the provisions of God. She stood on the word of God and she said, I'm not going to allow what I see to affect what I know. Lord, I know you gave me a promise. And Lord, I know it's going to come to fulfillment. The difficulty is very hard in the middle, but I'm holding on to the never-changing hand of the Galilean master. I know my God is able. I know my God can see me through. I know my God can move. I don't know what you're going through, but I'm here to tell you that same Jesus is in this room right now in the form of the Holy Spirit. Your family can be saved. Your situation is not too great for God. There was a little chicken named Chicken Little, you know. Chicken Little was minding his own business when a little acorn hit his head. Oh, he started going crazy. He bumps into Turkey Lurkey. And he said, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Turkey Lurkey got all bent out of shape and bumped into Ducky Wucky. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Ducky Wucky kind of lost his mind and bumped into Horsey Warsey. Horsey Warsey started bucking and shouting and frothing. The sky is falling. He bumps into Bossy the Cow. Bossy the Cow turns around and says, Chicken Little, you let one acorn turn your whole world and life upside down in this barnyard. And friends, if we're not careful, an acorn of life will hit your life. A problem, a difficulty. And if you don't respond right, the devil will try to convince you the whole kingdom of God is about to collapse. And you can let that acorn be planted in your spirit. And if you don't get it out of your spirit, that acorn is, will spring up to a full-blown tree of doubt and worry and fear and oppression and depression. And don't you dare think that Jesus has abandoned you. He'll never leave you or he'll forsake you. And the way you feel today has very little to do with what God's actually doing in your life. If you're a child of God, understand that whether you realize it or not, God is working in every situation. Well, how do I get there, Pastor? You have to ask the Holy Spirit and welcome him into your human experience. He's a gentleman, you know. But the moment you welcome him in, you say, Lord, I'm turning this thing over to you. I'm turning my finances over to you. I'm turning the promises over to you. Lord, I I'm, I'm going to give everything to you, Lord. Then God says, then I could step in.
I'm not going to allow what I see. I'm not going to allow what I see to forget what I know.